welcome to the Vespasian Warner Library District podcast. On the night of July 10th, 1910, Night Captain Tony Musser witnessed Chief Police John Struble shot to death in a struggle with a sneak thief. Three years later, the man he identified as the chief's killer was found not guilty. And only a few weeks after that, Tony Musser himself was shot to death outside the interurban station because of a rumor that he was really the man who killed Chief Struble. Anton Musser was born in 1872 near Oconee, Illinois. He married his wife Cora in 1901, and the couple had three children. He worked for Clinton Gas and Electric and was appointed to the police force in 1902. 1910 marked the beginning of a particularly trying time for Tony Musser. In January of that year, his brother was killed in a train accident in Taylorville. W.C. Musser worked as a brakeman, and while he was on the tracks signaling his engineer, a local train backed into him and killed him. His death came only months after the death of his four-year-old daughter, as well as the prolonged hospitalization of his wife. In July, Night Captain Musser, along with Chief Struble, attempted to arrest a suspected sneak thief who'd been plaguing the back porch icebox of Mr. Albert Sand. However, in the ensuing scuffle, the thief shot Chief Struble in the head, killing him. Despite firing a few shots at the man, he managed to escape. A month later, Musser was named Chief of Police, a position he held for a year while the investigation into Chief Struble's death continued. However, there were rumors in town that the newly crowned Chief Musser was responsible for the former chief's death, having either accidentally killed him while shooting at the thief, or worse. There was some speculation about a gun switch, but Musser soundly denied these rumors. The strain of the loss of his brother, and then the murder of the chief, and the subsequent investigation and rumors about his involvement took a toll on Musser's life. His wife filed for divorce in late 1911, citing repeated cruelty over a period of two years. She said that her husband had threatened to kill her and provided dates of such threats. She also said that he threatened to sell off furniture and everything else in the house. Her petition at the time was enough to get a restraining order, preventing Musser from going to the property or selling any of the household goods. Musser would later move to Decatur. For three years, law enforcement would search for Chief Struble's murderer before finally arresting John Weir and trying him for the crime. Musser returned from Decatur in order to identify Weir and to testify, apparently reconciling with his wife. However, Weir's defense provided reasonable doubt thanks to what appeared to be a solid alibi, and the jury found him not guilty. A few weeks later, Tony Musser would be dead. Carl E. Pearson was born in Sweden in 1885. His family immigrated to America, and Pearson later moved to Clinton in 1907. He was employed for the Illinois Central Railroad, working in the shops until the strikes began in 1911. A politically active socialist, he was a known agitator among the employees. He was the secretary of the employee union while the shop workers were on strike. Eventually, the strike failed, and many of the shop workers either went back to work for the Illinois Central, or they relocated to other cities for new employment. Pearsons, however, remained in Clinton, rallying for the cause. 
He started a small paper called the Strike Bulletin to keep strikers informed, but he also had a tendency to wield his power as editor in more malicious ways, particularly in regards to exercising personal vendettas against strikers who'd returned to work or anyone he deemed a scab. Tony Musser was one of those people. At some point, Musser began working in the Illinois Central shops, something that Pearson didn't know or care about until the John Weir trial. Upon finding out his employment and his involvement in the case, Pearson wrote an article published in the December 23rd issue of the Strike Bulletin, less than a week after the not guilty verdict had come down. The article read, quote, Tony Musser, who was on the police force at the time Chief of Police Struble was killed, put in a very strenuous week during the Struble murder trial here. Musser is now scabbing at the local bullpen, and he has been trying to help the state convict an innocent man by the name of Weir. However, from the flimsy statements made by Musser on the witness stand, it was easy to understand who Struble's murderer was and who operated the gun that did the killing. A man who will fall so low as to join the ranks of scabs and traitors will not hesitate to take a human life. Reputable people in this community are now trying to figure out why Musser gave his club to Officer Spink right after the shooting, and they are working on a rumor that Musser also traded guns with a party right after the time of the shooting. A photograph of Musser's brain undoubtedly would be of great benefit to those who are interested in running down the man who killed Struble. Needless to say, this article was not well received by Musser. And on December 30th, 1913, the two men would meet. Reports differ on how the two men both ended up at the interurban station at the time. According to some reports, Carl Pearson knew that Tony Musser would be taking the 232 South. According to other reports, Carl Pearson was working in the strike bulletin office when he received a phone call from a friend asking him to come down to the interurban station. Some say the call came from Musser himself. However it happened, Musser was in the cigar store at the station when he reportedly asked the cigar store clerk, Ernest Mitchell, if he knew Pearson. The man did. When Musser asked if he would point Pearson out to him, Mitchell did just that, as Pearson happened to be passing by the store at that moment. Musser rushed out of the store and a fight ensued between the two men, though the bigger and stronger Musser clearly had the upper hand. The altercation was brief as witnesses quickly rushed to separate the two men. As some men held back Musser, Pearson began to walk away, apparently not eager to re-engage in the fight. He then stopped some distance away, pulling a pistol from his pocket, and then in front of 30 or 40 witnesses, shot Musser. The men who'd been restraining Musser quickly let him go as Pearson advanced, continuing to fire. Musser staggered away before finally falling to the ground. Of the eight rounds in Pearson's twenty-two, seven were fired. The final shot prevented when a bystander by the name of Delmar Bryant rushed in and took the gun away. Dr. B.M. Pugh, who would later become mayor of Clinton, was in his office nearby and witnessed the shooting. He rushed down to render aid to Musser, but it did little good. An ambulance took him to the hospital, where he died as he was being carried into the building. Dr. Pugh would later perform the autopsy on Tony Musser. He found that all seven shots had hit Musser, three of which had gone through him, the bullets found in the dead man's clothing. Musser had been hit twice in the right shoulder, once over his right kidney, once in the rear part of the right hip, twice in the rear part of the left hip, and once in the left groin. 
It appeared that all of the shots, but the last, had entered from the rear. According to the Clinton Register, the gun Pearson used was a 32 automatic that required both hands to ready, but once prepped, could fire its rounds rapidly with the press of the trigger, which explained how Pearson was able to do so much damage so quickly. At the coroner's inquest, all of the witnesses but one agreed that Pearson had fired the shots that caused Musser's death. The only witness who didn't, Phil Wolfe, testified that as soon as he saw Pearson take the gun from his pocket, he turned to leave. The coroner's jury came back with a verdict before the new year. Carl Pearson would be held without bond for murder. Carl Pearson was immediately arrested following the shooting and taken to jail. Sheriff Armstrong contacted Dr. Pugh to tend to Pearson's wounds as the man had blood all over his face and down his shirt. However, Pearson refused treatment, instead insisting on having his picture taken with blood all over his face because he wanted to use it for his defense at trial. The request was refused, and Dr. Pugh left without treating Pearson. This reportedly turned into a battle of wills. Pearson's lawyer, A.F. Miller, who had already been working for him as Pearson was at the time facing federal charges related to the strike bullets and sending inflammatory and defamatory articles through the mail, also requested for the bloody pictures to be taken, but this request was also refused. Frank B. Comerford, a Chicago attorney who was retained to assist Miller with the defense, and a friend of Pearson's by the name of James Meager, who was president of the shops union during the strike, both showed up at the jail and attempted to bully a helper there, Oscar Lillard, into allowing the picture to be taken. Lillard felt he had no authority over the matter and offered to call the sheriff. However, once they insulted him, he rescinded his offer. The two men even pestered the sheriff's wife, once again resulting to insults. This time, the sheriff was called and nearly came to blows with Comerford because of his behavior. Comerford tried to pull rank with the sheriff, stating that he was Governor Dunn's attorney and he'd take the matter up with the governor. An unoppressed Sheriff Armstrong invited him to do so. After 40 hours, Comerford finally decided to allow the blood to be washed from Pearson's face and for him to receive medical treatment. Pearson had a scalp laceration about an inch and a half long on the upper part of the right side of his face. The blood from the wound had run down his face, making it appear as though he were more seriously injured. An exam reportedly found no other injuries. Rumors flew after Pearson's arrest. Some thought that he'd be spirited out of town to prevent mob violence. There was talk that both men had been drunk during the altercation, though every witness said that the men were sober. One rumor had it that Pearson had shot Musser after he'd fallen, but by all accounts, the victim was on his feet until the last shot. There was even a tale that two of the shots had hit the Christian church, when in fact all of the bullets fired had hit Musser and been accounted for. There was also some speculation as to whether or not Pearson was a legal citizen and if he might be deported after the trial. While Pearson's attorney worked on his behalf, notably gathering witness statements in preparation for a writ of habeas corpus, Pearson continued to edit and work on the strike bulletin while in jail. The next issue made no mention of the murder, however his attorney, Frank Comerford, did use it to appeal for donations for Pearson's defense fund. It was reported that 20,000 copies of the paper were sent out. Pearson's lack of funds were in part caused by a suit filed against him by Tony Musser's widow for $10,000. As a result, much of his newspaper office was seized on a writ of attachment pending the case. His attorney, A.F. Miller, was made custodian so Pearson could continue to put out the strike bulletin without interruption. 
The murder case went to court in May of 1914, presided over by Judge Cochran, who'd also overseen the Chief's John Struble murder trial just months before. Defense attorneys Miller and Comerford made a motion to squash the indictment, but that was overruled. The attorneys then asked for a change of venue. Judge Cochran gave the defense until June 15th to present affidavits for the change of venue and gave the prosecution until June 29th to present counter-affidavits showing why the defendant should be tried in Dewitt County. A motion was also made to dissolve the attachment on Pearson's property in the damage suit, but Judge Cochran denied the motion. Bail was again denied at that hearing. Court was adjourned until June 29th. By mid-June, Carl Pearson was taken to Chicago on a writ of habeas corpus from Judge C.M. Walker. At that appearance, Pearson was granted a $12,000 bail and the bond for his release was signed for by Mrs. Jean Comerford, the mother of Frank Comerford, Pearson's attorney, as well as another Chicago resident and later a Dewitt County resident. The Chicago papers apparently made it sound like Pearson had been secreted to the big city to protect him from mob justice, but in fact, the trip was a scheduled one and there'd been no real demonstrations against Pearson and Clinton. Days after his release on bail, Pearson made an appearance at a different kind of demonstration. He attended a big labor demonstration in Centralia where he headed the procession. The Clinton Daily Register suggested in its report on the event that Pearson's attendance was in poor form and that if it didn't hurt his chances for acquittal, then it would result in him being ostracized if he was acquitted. At the June deadline, Miller and Comerford filed 512 affidavits from different citizens in support of a venue change. Pearson also filed a 13-page affidavit detailing the labor battle between the strikers and the Illinois Central Railroad. Files of local newspapers which contained accounts of the shooting and in connection with the case were also submitted. The prosecution countered with 476 affidavits of citizens stating that Pearson could have a fair trial in Dewitt County. In July, Judge Cochran granted the change of venue. Carl Pearson's murder trial would be held in Logan County. The murder trial began in late September of 1914 in Lincoln, presided over by Judge W.E. Whitfield. Defense attorneys Miller and Comerford were joined by Lincoln attorneys Tim Beach and H.P. Trapp. State's Attorney Williams and Attorney Lot R. Herrick of the prosecution were joined by Logan County State's Attorney Smith. During the jury selection, Judge Whitfield advised that anyone who'd been employed by the railroad or any labor organization should be excused given Pearson's involvement with the Illinois Central and the strikes. He also advised that anyone adverse to the death penalty be excused as that was the penalty the prosecution was seeking. It was clear from the jury selection that there would be issues between the lawyers for the prosecution and the defense. They clashed during both the jury selection and the trial, which got them admonished by the judge for being out of bounds. The prosecution presented their evidence and witnesses from Friday until Monday. Though some details of the fight and the shooting varied, most of the witnesses agreed upon the fact that threats had been issued, Musser had bested Pearson in the fight, Musser and Pearson had been separated, and Pearson had walked away before shooting at Musser. One of the more detailed accounts came from farmer Joseph Barnett, which gave nearly a shot-by-shot replay of the murder. He claimed that Pearson had walked away with his hand in his hip pocket, but then returned, pulling out his gun and firing at Musser from 10 feet away. The second shot took Musser to his knees, and his third shot hit before he could stand back up. 
He claimed that the final shot hit Musser while he was face down on the ground. He also testified that he saw Pearson put his hand to his face and smear blood on it. The state's attorney's brother, Roscoe Williams, testified that he helped separate the men. He'd walked away but ran back at the sound of the shots, being one of the first at Musser's side. He and a man named Charles Klein helped turn Musser over, and Dr. Pugh attended to him. Delmore Bryant testified that he took the gun away from Pearson, who gave it to him without hesitation. He then gave the weapon to Sheriff Armstrong, who identified it in court as an 8-shot thirty-two caliber automatic Stevens. Bryant also stated that he later found Musser's overcoat in his saloon and gave that to Chief Burr. Doctors G.S. Edmondson and S.A. Graham testified about what they'd learned from Musser's autopsy, and undertaker C.J. Oakman provided Musser's bloodstained clothes for evidence. Saturday saw a heated debate about the strike bulletin article that Pearson had written about Musser. The prosecution wanted it to be entered in as evidence, and the defense strenuously objected. In the end, it was finally allowed on Monday. The prosecution rested their case, and the defense began theirs. According to reports, by this time, the Lincoln locals had gotten bored of the trial, leaving mostly Clinton residents as spectators. Several witnesses for the defense testified to the beating that Tony Musser had given Carl Pearson. Pearson's bloody clothes from the fight were also entered into evidence. His friend James Meager had kept them in a trunk. The shirt and tie showed a considerable amount of blood, and the trousers and coat were torn and dirty. Much of the defense's strategy seemed to hinge on the existence of a plot to kill Carl Pearson, and the fight with Musser at the inner urban station was a setup. However, the evidence was mushy at best. Samuel Hagler was called to the stand despite the prosecution's objections and gave testimony about the plot to kill Pearson, saying that he was told to warn him. However, this evidence was ruled out. Both C.H. Rousey and Arthur Rathburn were supposed to testify about the murder plot against Pearson, but Rousey said he hadn't talked with Musser the night before the shooting, and Musser never asked him to point out Pearson. The day of the shooting, Musser told Rousey he was going to lay off and do some trading, and if he happened to see Pearson, he'd give him a whipping. Rathburn testified that he'd read the Strike Bulletin article, and when he saw Musser in the roundhouse the morning of the shooting, he asked Musser about it. Musser reportedly replied, quote, You watch me. I'll get him. One of Delmore Bryant's bartenders testified that he saw Musser come out of the cellar where the telephone was located, implying that he'd been the one to call Pearson to the inner urban station. However, the state produced the man's grand jury testimony that stated Musser couldn't have called from the saloon. The witness was at a loss to explain his change of testimony. Ellis Baker, Frank Metters, and Walter Matthews were in the strike bulletin office when Pearson was called. They all testified that when Pearson answered the phone, he said, quote, All right, Kirk, I'll meet you. He then reportedly complained that Kirk had a lot of nerve to call from such a short distance. The interurban cigar clerk, Ernest Mitchell, testified about his conversation with Musser prior to the fight, that Musser asked if he knew who Pearson was, and when he said that he did, he asked him to point the man out. Mitchell did so as Pearson passed the door, and Musser rushed out and attacked him. Mitchell stated that Musser had Pearson by the collar or the throat. After Musser had been pulled away, Pearson stood up looking weak, his face covered with blood. John Taylor, who was employed as a section foreman at the Central and was at the interurban station at the time, also testified that Musser had Pearson by the throat or collar. He saw Musser strike Pearson three or four times in the face, but couldn't explain why Pearson only had one cut. 
He testified that he was the first to reach the fighting man, and he took Muster by the collar and, with the help of others, pulled him off Pearson because he thought he would kill him. In regards to the shooting, he said the last two shots were fired when Musser was down. Jesse Newcomb, proprietor of the McGill house, saw part of the fight and saw the men separated. He claimed to have heard Musser tell Pearson that he'd get him, accompanying the threat with an oath and a vile name. He said that there was blood on the left side of Pearson's face. In fact, multiple people testified that they couldn't recognize Pearson after the fight. Several also testified to hearing Musser make threats against Pearson. Myrtle Hinkle's testimony was murky. She stated that she was standing on the square when she heard the first shot, but it was all over by the time she reached the scene. Under cross-examination, however, she stated that she saw the first three shots, but a car arrived, obstructing her view. She claimed to have seen Pearson standing at the north end of the car with the revolver in his hand, but the car in question actually arrived five minutes after the shooting was over. Helen Jones also has some serious discrepancies with her testimony. She stated that she was in Weldon Ward's office when the fight started. According to her initial testimony, Musser and Pearson were six feet apart, with Musser facing Pearson and struggling to get to him when the first shots were fired. She claimed that Musser advanced at Pearson after the first two shots. However, upon cross-examination, she stated that Musser didn't stumble or fall into the last shot and that he tried to get away from Pearson after the second shot was fired. She testified that Musser was six feet away at the first shot and seven feet away at the last and admitted Musser didn't follow Pearson after the first shot. Dr. Pugh testified to what he'd seen of the fight, claiming that Musser had Pearson down on the ground and was bumping his head on the pavement. It looked as though Pearson was grappling with Musser, but not really fighting back. He testified that Pearson's dazed condition after the shooting could have been a stress reaction or anger. In regards to the autopsy of Musser, Dr. Pugh stated that the three shots to the chest could have come from the front, a change from his initial statement that all shots but the last entered from the back. Dr. J.B. Condon of Bloomington testified that he examined Pearson after he'd been taken to jail. He found an inch-long wound penetrating to the skull along with several scratches and bruises. A Chicago gun expert testified how the revolver might have been fired. If the gun was in proper working order and ready to fire, the trigger would have to be pulled back for every shot fired. Twenty character witnesses were called on Pearson's behalf with the defense stating that there were many more who wouldn't be called, before Pearson himself took the stand. Carl Pearson answered questions about himself, verifying that he'd been born in Sweden and came to the U.S. with his parents as a child. He admitted to lying about his age to get work with the Illinois Central, which employed him until he quit to join the strike. Pearson claimed that he began carrying a revolver after he was attacked in Decatur in June of 1913. He testified that he was telephoned at about 2.10 p.m. on December 30, 1913, and asked to meet a friend at the inner urban station. As he left the depot, someone attacked him. Pearson said he didn't know who his attacker was until they were separated. He stated that after they were apart, Musser lunged at him, and Pearson shot at him. Claiming to be dazed and weak at the time of the shooting, Pearson couldn't recall how many times he fired at Musser. Pearson finished giving his testimony on Friday morning, after which the state called their rebuttal witnesses and the closing arguments began. The case went to the jury at 3.30 on Saturday afternoon. Tony Musser's widow and children were in the courtroom every day of the trial. However, Pearson paid no attention to them, focusing only on the judge and the witnesses. After 22 ballots, 
the jury returned with a verdict on Sunday afternoon. Not guilty. Carl Pearson was immediately released upon the verdict. He went back to Clinton a free man, though he still faced libel suits and the damages suit filed against him by Mrs. Musser. The libel suit, which focused on statements made in the strike bulletin about the late Aaron Howard and a disparaging cartoon about John Fuller shortly before his death, came to a close in July of 1915, with Pearson being found not guilty. He wasn't as lucky with the damages suit filed by Tony Musser's widow. In October of 1916, the court found in her favor and awarded her $7,000 of the $10,000 she sought. In July of 1915, after the conclusion of the libel case, Pearson's attorneys ended up fighting over the split of the money earned during Pearson's trials. A.F. Miller claimed that Frank Comerford owed him $800 that he'd been promised and was to be paid at the conclusion of Pearson's cases. 1915 also saw Carl Pearson's departure from Clinton. He moved to Chicago, claiming the need for bigger offices for the strike bulletin. Speculation, however, suggested that he was leaving town due to the bitterness that resulted from Tony Musser's murder and the subsequent trial. His final move from town happened in 1916 after the settlement of Mrs. Musser's civil suit. A curious postscript to this case involves a psychic. A mental telepathist by the name of G.H. Bryant, stage name Kayyem, appeared at the Star Theater in December of 1922. Accepting an invitation from the Clinton Daily Public newspaper, he discussed with them his psychic impressions of a recent robbery that had occurred at the home of Dr. G.S. Edmondson, who testified at Tony Musser's murder trial and tended to the mortally wounded Chief John Struble. The psychic then turned his talents to the murder of Chief John Struble, saying that he was killed by a man who was later killed in a street fight in Clinton, and his murderer was later acquitted when brought up for trial in Lincoln. Thank you for joining us. For more information about the Vespasian Warner Public Library District, please go to vwarner.org. <laughs>